Computer, initialize Holosuite. Holosuite Media. Greetings and felicitations. Yep, yep, hurrah. Telly ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Pudden. We have a YouTube channel. We are Starpod Log and Starpod Trek. Look us up on YouTube and subscribe and comment. So we're not just on this audio version. We also have audio on that video platform as well. So you can hear us in all different places. And we're on Blogspot where you can uh, find our podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're also part of Holly Sweet Media Network. They have a lot of fun podcasts, and we're part of their group now. Also, check us out on Blogspot because we do convention re- reviews, reports, the whole nine yards. So we're not just limited to this awesome content, but there's a ton more. So let's get into Starlog Magazine number 7, August. 1977, that's the cover date. Free blueprints. Fantastic color photos. A preview of the spectacular new science fiction movie, Star Wars. This is probably one of my top ten Starlog covers of all time. It's from Star Wars. It has two ships in space fighting. It's basically a Star War on the cover. I mean, this is the type of thing that, for that time period, was just screams excitement. We're seeing that now, because Star Wars has become such a hit, there's a lot more coverage. Previously, when we were reading Starlog magazine, there were just little blurbs, little excerpts, little just pieces of information of what this movie was about. Now, we're going full throttle into a lot of Star Wars coverage. Also, we're going to talk about Robbie the Robot, Rocketchick XM, and David Gerald Goes Ape. So let's open it up. Inside cover, advertising a poster entitled Not of This Earth, Encounter, the most amazing UFO vision ever recorded. So it's essentially a painting of a 1950s UFO encounter, and it's only $3.50 plus 50 cents postage and handling. Mail to Watchdog Graphics in Blair, Nebraska. From the bridge. Now this is content from... Kerry O'Quinn, the editor-in-chief. Interesting observation that he makes. He says, This past weekend, I dropped by the latest science fiction convention. Although our staff is generally too busy to attend each and every con, we do it when we can, and we always learn something important. There was a dealer's table in the room for The Prisoner. That's right, that wonderful TV series that starred Patrick McGowan in one of science fiction's favorite plot situations, an individual fighting for his freedom in a society designed to enforce group conformity. The Prisoner At this table, they weren't selling buttons or t-shirts or photos or posters. In fact, they weren't selling anything. Will you sign our petition? was the plea of the young lady at the table. She was hopeful that the series can be brought back on television in the New York area, and she brought a table at the convention in order to solicit names for a petition her group plans to send to a local target station. Her letterhead proudly reads, An informal cult fanatically dedicated to the revival of this television series, The Prisoner. And it goes on to say how 
what a delight it was to sign this petition. And that's a thing that makes science fiction fans different than any other fans. They want this show to come back, so they're making this petition, and they're going to send it to the studio and hopefully have it revived. And and so that's what um what what this article is about by the publisher. He's saying he he likes these fans who want to get involved like that. And think about how many times over the years, different series have come back because of the fan demand. Like Star Trek, yes. <laughs> of course, I mean that's the one that started it all with that letter writing campaign. But the prisoner was part of this. We're going to see later on this issue that Space 1999 had a devoted set of fans that wanted that show to come back. I mean, us as nerds, we we really do have a passion for the things that we love. And we hate to see these shows die. We always want them to come back. We want them to to continue. And and. And, and it's, we, we feel, especially back then in the 70s, it was harder for a science fiction show to, uh, to continue. I mean, if one got on the air, that was great. And then a lot of them got canceled after one season. So it, it's another reason, like, because we, we, there, there's so few sci-fi shows on TV so that we would fight for the ones that were on even more. Absolutely. Advertisement, music to read science fiction by. So, essentially, it's great science fiction film music. You'd end up getting this if you join this book club. Pick any four books for ten cents with membership, including the Hugo Award winners, Gateway, Imperial Earth, the Foundation Trilogy, Children of Dune, Communications. These are letters that Star Log received. Remember last issue we spoke about Don Dixon, the space artist? Don Dixon himself wrote a letter and said he presented a copy of Star Log to his 90-year-old Italian grandmother, and she sang a little song, smiled, and danced, and carried on. She couldn't believe that her grandson was featured in Star Log magazine. Oh, isn't that sweet? And then he also talked about NASA doing these biomedical tests for people uh, who want to be on the space shuttle. So, so he's still in, involved in these things. Who's Robot? In the Outer Limits TV episode guide, I saw the title, I, Robot. It was written by Otto Binder. I was confused. Why would two different authors, Asimov and Binder, print a story with the same title? Is Binder copying Asimov, or is Asimov copying Binder? Please answer. It's driving me crazy. Now, the funny thing is, I remember that, being confused when I was younger, because I saw those two titles. But Asimov is known worldwide as being the author of iRobot. It just so happens to be a coincidence that there was an Outer Limits episode entitled iRobot as well. It's so weird that they do that. Yeah, like the the names are not copyrighted. You can you can repeat the names, and I mean they well they did make a movie I Robot, which was it was supposed to be based on Asimov. Yeah, but it you know mm-hmm. wasn't really like it. It was more inspired by it. Yeah. Burial request. I would appreciate it if Starlog would strive to analyze what it publishes before it is printed. Starlog must be careful not to give equal space to good and bad current science fiction, or even to old science fiction without mention of any bad aspects, 
so as to present constructive criticism for the future. Starlog should bury bad sci-fi, not praise it. Now this is interesting, and this is one of the reasons why I loved Starlog growing up, because it reported on everything, and it let the reader decide what was good and bad. You could you could kind of tell. I mean, maybe sometimes a writer didn't didn't like something as much, but but yeah, I mean, I prefer Starlog to to report on everything because even those. I mean, you know, this person might think something is bad, but I might like it. So yeah, it's kind of it, it's funny though. P- people are still the same way though. They would rather like, oh, why don't you only print stuff that I like? You know, I mean, <laughs> of course people are going to be like that. And Starlog takes that stand, saying, "We make no pretensions of being the final." arbiter of quality presentations in science fiction. They're going to throw it all at us. It it gave us everything, and then we were able to pick and choose what we wanted to to devour. Log Entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Now, the star of Sinbad, the Eye of the Tiger, was the special effects. And later on in this issue, it talks about the history of that stop-motion animation. I mean, Ray Harryhausen's, this was his 11th feature film. And those Sinbad movies were known for the special effects. I mean, it, you know, you, the thing is the stop motion, you can kind of see it. I mean, you can kind of tell that it, that it's not real, but it still looks good. It's still, it's still believable enough to draw you in. You just kind of see it, but you, you see it every second, like stop and move. This was a precursor to Clash of the Titans. Yeah, and that was which, huge. Which we was, both watched yes. that. But I remember as a kid watching the scene with the skeletons and just being so terrified about it. I don't remember the storylines of these movies, but it is true. The star of these movies definitely was the special effects. New Stereo of Old Kong. Talks about the release of the RKO 1933 version of King Kong. That is the soundtrack. We know during this time in the 70s, more soundtracks were being released because people were collecting records in volume. CBS confirms Logan. Logan, tentative working title for CBS TV's new fall series, has begun filming at MGM Television. The opening segment of the hour-long dramatic series deals with the escape of Logan and Jessica from the Dome City and their flight to Sanctuary through the wilderness of post-nuclear Holocaust 23rd century. Holograms on display. Through the Looking Glass was the name of the first show at New York City's 80th Museum, the Museum of Holography. Interesting. And that's a neat idea. Yeah, so there's something really that's is. in New York. And so I looked it up. So there there was one in New York that closed, and they have they have a few around now. There's one in Chicago and some other places. But it, it does sound like an interesting idea. And it must have been so different back then than the than the way those museums would be now, what they would have in them. you got to think holograms in 1977 were considered futuristic yes. technology. Chris Lee in Alien Role Christopher Lee, most famous for his Count Dracula portrayals, is now doing science fiction. His newest film, Alien Encounter, will be finished this year. Six Million Dollar Hassles Universal Television's Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman have been having some problems lately. The show business newspaper Variety recently headlined that Lee Majors notified Universal that he will not return next season to star in The Six Million Dollar Man. His wife, 
Farrah Fawcett Majors also told Spelling Goldberg Productions that she does not intend to return to Charlie's Angels. The husband-wife team have formed their own company, Fawcett Majors Productions, to make films theatrically and for television. And that was interesting, because I didn't know that they had formed their own studio together. So that must be, you know, why, why she left Charlie's Angels, because she was only on it for one season. Mm-hmm. Wizards in Full Distribution Ralph Bakshi's Wizards premiered nationwide the week of April 25th after being test-marketed in a few key cities for several weeks. Bakshi's new animated feature is an apocalyptic vision of the Earth in far-flung future. The film is at its best when Bakshi allows his creation, elves, fairies, mutants, and magicians to get involved in playful diversions. I love Ralph Bakshi Productions. I think he's just an absolute mastermind when, when it comes to animated film. New from McGregor and Gulitzy. Fiction Your Books has released an oversized first edition paperback by science fiction and fantasy author Don McGregor. Don wrote for Marvel Comics' Kill Raven science fiction series, but this collection of stories called Dragon Flame and Other Bedtime Nightmares represents a radical departure for him in theme and style. Dragon Flame is a contemporary piece set in present-day Manhattan that seems like Armageddon. It features accompanying full-page illustrations by artist Paul Gulacy, known for his work on Marvel's Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu title. New space comedy in production. Richard Benjamin will star in Quark, a science fiction comedy development project now in production for NBC TV. I saw like one episode of Quark. It was okay, but never you know, saw but, it. But that show didn't last, you know. It's kind of. But um, it it would be interesting to watch it now. I did look look back and that like some of the characters, it kind of looked interesting. Well, like maybe I would want to see it now. <laughs> L.A. Con draws big names, yields big news. There's an obvious advantage to attending a con in Los Angeles. You're in the movie capital, where real costumes, procs, science fiction effects men, actors, directors, producers, and writers are. So this article about the con, so they had several guests there. Um, Jared Martin from Fantastic Journey, and he said he likes his role because it's nonviolent. And, and I mean, I, I'm familiar with him because he was on Dallas, you know. You know so on fa Fantastic Journey, you remember him? He was the handsome guy that was mysterious at first, that was yes. just like an Indian. Yes. So he he did play a great part on that show because it was something. I mean, yeah, he was he was the nice guy. He was the peaceful guy. And it's interesting. It mentions that the con had its dominant share of Star Trek films and items for sale. But the panels and programs featured mainly other fare, from which came some up-to-the-minute news of current sci-fi productions in Hollywood. The all-time winner on the applause meter was a presentation and panel on Star Wars. Charles Lippincott narrated the story while slides and a film trailer showed key scenes. Mark Hamill, who plays Luke Skywalker in the film, said, amongst other things, I was really lucky to get this part. I've been a science fiction fan for years. I used to read famous monsters. I've attended several cons just as a fan. Indeed, Mark was first spotted at the convention as he was making the rounds of the dealer's table. SFX man John Dykstra and producer Gary Kurtz answer questions about effects, miniatures, sets, and costumes.
Lippincott revealed the latest tidbit. The music score by Jaws composer John Williams will be released this spring as an unprecedented two-record set. By popular demand, the Star Wars trailer was shown again at the conclusion of the session and gathered even louder cheers than it had the first time. And it shows a picture of Mark Hamill visiting the Starlog table as a fan. That's cool. Yeah, because, um, I mean, I, you know, from what I've heard about Mark Hamill, I've always thought of him like... um. That, that he's kind of like Will Wheaton on Star Trek. I mean, someone who, who was always a fan and then got to be a part of sci-fi or the, this fantasy uh, genre and got to mingle with the fans. And so that is just so, I mean, it's so great that he, he got to live his dream. He got to be, and even at this time, he didn't even know then how big it was going to be. No one knew how big it was going to be. It, you got to figure at this time, there were no toys. They were just, they were really trying to scramble to get more merchandise out even and because they they didn't know yeah like anything of course you, you don't know when you're making a mon- monumental movie and then when you set out to one it probably to make one it probably wouldn't be one so yeah it was just it was just so mind-shattering what it became and the more and more we're going over these old star logs and putting them in place as to what was happening and what the expectations were it's just even more fascinating. So, so I just want like they they took these random pictures. It looks like, and they're all they're in black and white, and they're kind of small. Fans dressed up as Planet of the Apes. We know that the ape movies were immensely popular then. Ray Ray Harryhausen was a speaker at this convention. Christopher Lee was a speaker at this convention. And also, uh, Robbie the robot, uh, the man who was who was the builder, he was there. And he had he said he made a, a copy of of the robot to bring there. This section is amazing, so we recommend either, as always, read along with us in your copy of Starlog magazine, or there's a link where you can find Starlog magazine online for free. And and actually, I've noticed. Amazon actually has Starlog for free now that you can download. So you, oh, that's you great. can get it there as well. Yeah, so it's because, yes, we talk about the audio portion of it, our commentary, or actually reading from it, but this is what made Star Wars so amazing in comparison to other science fiction of the time was how visually spectacular it was. And this section has tons and tons of photos. Original photos, stills from the movie, but also the concept photos with the Ralph McQuarrie pre-production artwork. If you're among those who would rather see a new movie cold, save these pages until after you've seen Star Wars. If, on the other hand, you want to know why and how the film was made, if you're curious about location filming in the Tunisian desert, special problems the production encountered and solved, who designed Chewbacca and why the alien costumes weren't good enough at first, whether the robots conform to Asimov's laws, how to make a bantha, what literature and culture influenced the writer, how some of the special effects and settings were accomplished, who the actors and characters are and what they'll be doing, and sundry other bits of data. Then read on. Creating the Space Fantasy Universe of Star Wars by David Houston Star Wars is a legend ahead of itself. Prior to the film's Memorial Day premiere, 
The screenplay was published in the form of a Ballantine science fiction novel. On the basis of only a few released stills, the Star Wars production office was being deluged by requests, all denied, from collectors. After seeing only a few completed sequences, 20th Century Fox moguls had already begun to see a commitment for a sequel. Alan Dean Foster had completed a second story that could form the basis of such a sequel, and it had already been sold as a novel. The making of Star Wars, an illustrated book by Charlie Lippincott, had also been sold and will be published this summer. The Marvel Comics version of the story had hit the stands in March and was selling well. An enormous toy and model kit was being finalized. There were negotiations underway for a TV series based on Star Wars, and while all of this was going on, only a handful of people had seen the movie. What is this movie? Can it possibly live up to expectations? Star Wars is a new $10 million science fantasy film made by Gary Kurtz, producer, and George Lucas, writer-director, and released by 20th Century Fox. It stars Mark Hamill as farmer and astronaut Luke Skywalker, Harrison Ford as smuggler Han Solo, Carrie Fisher as Princess and Senator Leia Organa, Sir Alec Guinness as warrior Ben Obi-Wan Kenobi, Peter Cushion as villainous Grand Moff Tarkin, Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca the Wookiee, Dave Prowse as treacherous Darth Vader, and robots C-3PO and R2-D2 as themselves. The story is set in another galaxy and time and concerns a valiant struggle against totalitarian empire that is spread amongst the stars. The characters herein have never heard of Earth. Their alien worlds and cultures, their dress and architecture, their technology, history, and future, if any, are not of our world. Even more than was true for Star Trek in Space 1999, the universe of Star Wars is totally fabricated out of imagination. The fabricator is George Lucas. He first got the idea for Star Wars six years ago, around the same time he was developing what would be his first box office hit, American Graffiti. Lucas was a youngster then, not long out of film school at the University of Southern California, and with only one feature to his credit, the now-famous little science fiction understatement THX 1138 and at one point one studio was interested in both projects much of the development money for both graffiti and Star Wars came from Universal finally Universal picked up graffiti but let Star Wars lapse they could see that Star Wars would cost them 12 times what graffiti would Lippincott says that Hollywood is just now shedding its old fogginess as when demonstrated by the youthful production of the Academy Awards program this year. It's for young people. Graffiti was for 16-year-olds. This is for 14-year-olds. Young people don't have a fantasy life anymore. Not the way we did. All they've got is Kojak and Dirty Harry. There's all these kids running around wanting to be killer cops. Nobody except Disney makes movies for young people anymore. I want to open up the whole realm of space for them. Charlie Lippincott, incidentally, he and Lucas were school friends back at USC, explains their own classification of the film as science fantasy, not science fiction. The only people where 
going to offend are the die-hard science fiction people who are into the whole idea that science fiction is what Hugo Gernsbach said it was, dealing only with plausible science of the future on a fictional level. Our hardware is so fantastic as to be really impossible. We're not set in the future anyhow. Our film is set in another galaxy, and it says in the credits it's in the past. It's a fantasy film, a space fairy tale. That's why we call ourselves space fantasy and not science fiction. Okay, so there's a lot that we need to comment about these paragraphs. Uh, first off is the fact that this essentially was made for young people. The movie. The movie, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's funny saying it's made for 14-year-olds, but American Graffiti is for 16-year-olds. A two-year difference does make a big difference, though. Well, yeah, because at 16 is when you want to people drive start dating. Girls yeah, and driving. Stuff like that because, yes. Because I know for myself is once Return of the Jedi was over, I was of that age of it's not that I never liked Star Wars again. Like I always liked Star Wars, but I was kind of petering out i didn't get those last 17 action figures and stuff i was just you know moving on just general growing up, growing you up. Mean, yeah, yeah yeah i mean i i always i always say i always liked star wars but when i was younger i was like super passionate about it but it's an interesting observation about he knew a a certain certain focus of who he was making this movie for and by default younger fans were attracted to it for the pure simplicity of it well i mean saying that kids don't have any what anything to play with today don't have any or back in that time didn't have a good like fantasy world didn't have these types of characters is that how you were before star wars came out i didn't think so i I had mego dolls i was really into superheroes very much into Batman, they're, they're Six just, Million yeah. Dollar Man. They did the movie Six world, though. They're like, they didn't really have the superhero movies back then. That is so true. So, when it came yeah. to movies, it was it, everything was TV-based. TV, comic book, and cartoon-based. What about you? Yeah, for me, it was TV and cartoons, exactly. Yeah, so when it came to movies, there is some truth to that. Because Planet of the Apes, the first two movies were very cerebral science fiction. Even though, yeah, the the children like it just because it's apes, but as far as the story, it was really more for I adults. I had the toys because I loved the toys, but when it came to the the stories, it was like the later movies were more kid based, and the TV show was more kid based and more accessible. So it's an interesting observation that movie. If you were to just say movies, there really wasn't because science fiction took a break for the movies when it came to things that were family oriented. Two thousand one. Space Odyssey, not a kid's science fiction movie. you got to think of the movies of the era. So when it comes to movies, he's right. Well, and, and as he said, Disney was the only one that made movies for young people. So, it, so it's ironic. Like he did, I'm sure he didn't know back then that he would wind <laughs> up selling Star Wars to Disney. And what do you think about the comments of his movie is not science fiction? I mean, that that's what people today say about Star Wars. It. it, it I, and I'm glad they said it way back then because I didn't realize they had said it back then. Yeah, it it is um, space fantasy. Even though they have they have spaceships, but they don't get into the engineering of them and talk about how it works or, or why it. There's broke no down. life support systems. There's no anti gravity on the Millennium Falcon when they leave the Falcon and and the Empire Strikes Back. They don't have to put on any pressurized suits. You can't. You you dis. You suspend belief, disbelief so much in those movies that it has created his own physics. 
Whereas well, we I wouldn't mean, yeah, accept at, that anywhere else because the other science fiction that we've watched always addresses the real world engineering behind this. I mean, look at the force. I mean, it, it's basically magic. That's it. Fantasy. So, yes. So, so it, it's just, um, it's using those science fiction elements of having the spaceships, but it's, it's more of a fantasy story, especially when you think about rescuing the princess. Absolutely. Article continues. It's space opera. The story Lucas invented follows the three musketeers-like exploits of Luke Skywalker, a restless young farmer who lives with his uncle on the arid planet Tatooine, a place so useless the local inhabitants believe that the dictatorship swallowing up the rest of the galaxy is unconcerned with them. This proves not to be so, and Luke finds himself pulled into the resistance movement and its only hope he has with him Unknowns to him at first is a robot that contains a message from a captured lady senator. The message includes information on how to cripple the Death Star, a moon-sized ship that carries enough weaponry to destroy planets, and does, that houses the seat of dictatorship, and that holds the senator prisoner. Luke's leader and mentor is old Obi-Wan Kenobi, among the last of the noble knights of the Old Order and among whose pupils were Luke's own father and Darth Vader, the right-hand axe-man of the dictator. It was Vader, in fact, who killed Luke's father many years ago. The story has influences from all over the place, Lippincott says. People have pointed out that they see suggestions of things from Lord of the Rings or Flash Gordon or Dune, and there are a lot of influences from outside science fiction like the samurai tradition of Japan. That's part of the basis for the film's Jedi Warriors, although I doubt that many outside of Japan would be too aware of it. Most importantly, the story relates to legend and fairy tale. It's what Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen were doing. It's like space opera, Lucas freely admits. So he mentions that it's space opera. Let's talk about that phrase. So, so you're it's it's in space and there's drama. Yeah, what does opera mean? It means that it's a story. It's basically something exactly a large story of something grander than life. Yes, um, and and this is the scope of Star Wars. Even at this early stage, we know that little tidbits in the movie reveal that we know some of the past. In this article, it mentions that Obi-Wan's pupils were both Darth Vader and his father. So it hasn't been revealed who Dar- that Darth Vader is his father. Because that was, of course, in Empire Strikes Back. Yes. Uh, so we're seeing family drama. That's a key element to, to opera. And we're also going into the future. It ended on a question. What happened to Darth Vader? What's not next for the galaxy? A lot of science fiction stories before this were very compartmentalized. There was a beginning, a middle, and an end. It didn't set the stage for anything else. So this massive scope of Star Wars, even at this point, with what people knew about the movie, was opened up the door for so much more. It was about this... I mean, Luke Skywalker was really a main character, as the small, like a small town boy from from a from an unknown planet, and 
and it's funny that they called him a um astronaut. An astronaut. Yeah. <laughs> it well see he's a pilot. I think that's what they meant, really. It it's his piloting skills that basically got him off the planet in this movie. We gotta figure at this time there was nothing like Star Wars. So any woman who leaves a planet on a spaceship is was generally considered an astronaut. It's interesting yes, to, to look the... at it in comparison to other science fiction. Because what else was going on at the time? Space 1999? Not a lot. Not a lot when it came to space. There was no Star Trek. Star Trek there was, was very... There was Star Trek. On TV, except... you mean. Repeats. Yes, yes. Just repeats. But I'm saying in 1977, there wasn't a lot of space-oriented science fiction. The science fiction was all real-world-based, like Six Million Dollar Man. So, I mean, Something just, that was that was yeah science that was like that could still be in the totally present. Totally relatable. And, I mean, yes. this is there was nothing like this at all. And then to have a space fantasy set in the past, it's just it's mind blowing to 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 look at George Lucas's attitude in addressing these issues. And early on, he was getting slack for not being sci fi enough. But he knew what he wanted. He had his vision. He made it exactly the way he wanted it. Designing the production. Work began on the film back in 1975 when 20th gave the official go-ahead. Of top priority was the physical design of the picture. Lucas called together various design consultants and met with Los Angeles artist Ralph McQuarrie. McQuarrie turned out a sequence of breathtakingly beautiful paintings incorporating set, costume, and effect designs that formed the basis from which later designers worked. Many of the paintings were completed a full year before Star Wars began its 17 weeks of shooting. Lucas had several important ideas that integrated the picture with regard to design, believability, and visual character. George wanted the look of the show to be spectacular, Lippincott explains, and for the hardware to be unfamiliar enough to continually suggest another time and place. But he was also careful not to make it too different because then the audience would be so wrapped up in the sets that they would not pay attention to the storyline. Anyone who has read the Star Wars novel can appreciate the necessity for this. The plot moves extremely rapidly with ample twists and turns, like the melodramatic suspense thriller that it is. It's not a film one would want to come in the middle of, Lippincott warns. Lucas also insisted that the worlds of Tatooine, the Death Star, and the jungle satellite Yavin, filmed in Central America, have the look of a used universe. So the smuggler ship that's supposed to be a century old has grease smears, straff marks from countless scrapes of with the law, and meteorite pits. The buildings look lived in. Even on the allegedly newly built Death Star, there's evidence that the construction crew hasn't gotten around to cleaning up, and so on. These people have a life and history of their own, says Lippincott, and we're just interpreting, momentarily, that life. So 1975, he started filming this project. I mean, what do you think about that? Because they they filmed on different locations, and so, yeah, it would take time. Yeah, and the more and more we compare it to science fiction and everything that was going on, we're seeing how extremely advanced his ideas were. To have a film that's a well-worn-in universe, that was different. Because every other science fiction was what? 
new. Mm-hmm. It, it looked, yeah. And, and that is something I noticed about this movie. It did look worn, which made it look more real because I think everything was supposed to be old except for the Death Star because they were just building it. So, so it did look worn and used and, and that, that it was such a brilliant idea for the movie because as you said, like other, other movies did not have that, did not have that element. So many areas he, he was groundbreaking and claiming something that's totally new and totally different. The recalcitrant cameraman. To ensure a sense of realism amid the spectacular imaginative trappings, Lucas hoped to utilize a documentary-style camera. Both Lucas and Lippincott had been to me, says Lippincott. He was the best black-and-white cameraman of the 60s. Amazing guy. He was Polanski's favorite, and he was Hitchcock's favorite. Hitchcock wanted to bring him. The Star Wars cameraman saw the dark drama, the brilliant action, a creative use of color, and wild camera angles. Now the finished product has a combined artistic documentary look. I think George sees that in retrospect. Home base for the production was the EMI Elstree facility in London, where approximately 30 sets were built on the eight rented stages. Elstree's ninth stage was being used by Paul McCartney's Wings Group. The Star Wars company took over everything there. Studio, stages, technical facilities, scene shops, prop storage for three months prior to the commencement of filming. Their big deadline to prepare for the desert planet scenes, which were to be shot in Tunisia just ahead of the tourist season. So what do you think about that idea of being influenced by Hitchcock? That was interesting. Um, just because, I mean, Hitchcock was such a brilliant director, so that's the reason Lucas admired him. We just saw Frenzy recently. We did. It's funny so, that he mentioned well, that. And, but, but it wasn't black and white, and they're saying that that, that director mm-hmm. was good with black and white and everything. But it's there's so many layers to the original Star Wars movie that made it so impressive. And this is why I say this is one of the must-have issues of Starlog. The cover, the content... The, the time capsule of, of what was going on. Absolutely amazing. The little robots that couldn't. But they had problems with the robots and the sand crawler, Lippincott explains, and couldn't quite make it on time. There are numerous robots throughout the film that serve the humans in various ways, and two of them are actually major characters. C-3PO and R2-D2 are mechanical sidekicks reluctantly devoted to each other, with very human personalities. C-3PO is a mildly effeminate public relations droid who speaks most of the languages in the galaxy and is given to frustration and sarcasm. He's made of gleaming gold metal and has a roughly humanoid appearance. R2-D2 is a squat little cylinder bristling with lights, sensors, and manipulating mechanisms who is the feisty brains of the pair and who can speak only in electronic gibberish it has to be interpreted by C-3PO. According to Lippincott, these were not men in robot suits. There is one robot suit in which a man appears for perhaps three minutes of screen time. Some of the robots are animated by various trick photographic means, but a number of them are real robots with internal motors and radio controls. Lucas apparently hoped he could invent he could actually advance radio technology. 
He wanted his mechanical men to be the real thing. He sent his SFX expert, John Steers, to visit the top English roboticists, who told him sadly that what Lucas had in mind was just not possible with the state of the art today. Compromises, time-consuming ones, had to be made. I think George was really disappointed that he did not beat the existing robot technology, says Lippincott. But today's robotics deals with things that do not look like robots of fiction. Today's robots are things that put bottle caps on soda pop and stuff like that. There are some experimental models, like the little robot up in Palo Alto, California, that used to run around and find its own power source, then plug itself in and feed itself. That's certainly unique, but it was just a gimmick, something they made for pleasure and to show off other people's robotics. R2-D2 performs a similar feat in Star Wars. Do the Lucas robots conform to Isaac Asimov's laws of robotics? And then um, they have a footnote here where they, where they quote Asimov's laws of robotics um, as stated in iRobot. Number one, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings except when such orders would conflict with the first law. Number three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Okay, so now we're talking about the unique area of robotics in the film. Amazing, George wanted real robots. But this is, he couldn't get them. Yeah. And in and, and talking about R2-D2 and C-3PO as robots feels strange to me because we've been trained to call them droids for so long. Yeah, and I, yeah, and because they're droids, I don't think of them as robots, really, and because they had such personalities. And, and this is funny. This article saying CP3O is effeminate, <laughs> <laughs> but but also because it said that they're that the robots are not men in suits, but but we always thought they were because we know the the actress who played them. Mm-hmm. Continues to say, as George says, conveys Lippincott. Anybody who's going to do robots nowadays is into science fiction and is going to be aware of Asimov's laws. George was certainly aware of them, but he was determined to work around them. What Asimov described was an ideal situation. What a robot should be within our culture. What is the case in Star Wars is humanoid robots with individual quirks, just like human beings have quirks. Both of our robots have their own ideas as to whom their masters are and what their responsibilities are. So there can be conflicts between the two robots. So, sci-fi fans, that is, hardcore sci-fi fans of that time, knew Asimov's law of robotics. So let's ask that question. Does, at this time, not, not Return of the Jedi and Empire and everything past that, at this time, can we say that the droids follow the laws of robotics from what we see? I guess they do, but the thing is, like in the movie, the, these droids were not. Um, I mean, I mean that like they were not in control. It, it was the humans who who commanded the robots. That's true. That's true. Even let's see, when there was no restraining bolt on them, I guess they were free to do whatever they wanted to do. But they they still wanted to serve. I mean, you could tell three PO wanted to serve. Yes, I mean, that that was what he was built for. It was his programming. 
even R2-D2, had a mission. But there was no killing of humans, no injury to humans. The robots were giving orders, uh, were taking the orders, and I saw no conflict with protecting their own existence. So they did follow the laws. Yes. Yep. We know that later on that they wouldn't. There would be battle droids, that there would be other things, uh, you know, torture droids, things of that sort. But it's just amazing that that was even a consideration in the sci-fi community, analyzing the relationship between the droids and... Well, no one in this movie is called a human, though, when you think about it. That's true. Yeah, they, they don't use the word human. They don't talk about Earth, either. These people mm-hmm. do not know anything about Earth. I mean, they're in another galaxy. So that's why I say Asimov's laws of robotics don't apply to the Star Wars universe because it's such a separate universe. It is. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's Lucas's own creation. He built this whole universe. That's one reason it's so popular now, because it is a whole universe all its own. More trouble in Tunisia. When the time came to pack up and head for Tunisia, the robots were not the only problem. From the Star Wars novel, two Banthas stirred at the approach of their masters. Each was as large as a small dinosaur, with bright eyes and long, thick fur. They hissed anxiously as the two sand people approached, then mounted them from knee to saddle. With a kick, Banthas rose, moving slowly but with enormous strides. The two massive horned creatures swept down the back of the rugged bluff. Every method considered seemed far too expensive a way to make a Bantha. Finally, they put off solving the problem, and it was decided that the Bantha should be done back in the United States, and the footage would be inserted into the Tunisia work. Here, much later, they rented an elephant, transported it to the sands of the Mojave Desert, dressed and camouflaged it to look like a bantha, and got the missing shot. From the novel, Gravel and fine sand formed a gritty fog beneath the land speeder as it slid across the rippling wasteland of Tatooine on humming repulsors. How can you make such a craft when you don't actually have repulsor technology? It was a big problem, Lippincott confines. Ultimately, John Steers, who was the head of production of special effects, did it. He got a tri-wheel vehicle and completely redesigned around that. George still doesn't think it works completely, but I do. In some shots, it really looks like it's floating in air. The problem was always that we couldn't use a hovercraft because it would toss up a cloud of sand and just cause all sorts of hell. No, he says, in answer to my question, there was no problem with the tire tracks because... He adds, keeping the secret to himself, it was really used with the wheels. From the novel. At the bottom of the canyon, like some monstrous prehistoric beast, was a sand crawler as enormous as its owner and operators were tiny. Several dozen meters high, the vehicle towered above the ground on multiple treads that were taller than a man. Its metal epidermis was battered and pitted from withstanding untold sandstorms. It was found that building the sand crawler full-scale and transporting it to, to Tunisia was economically out of the question. The solution? They built only about two stories of it, the bottom section with the tank-like treads for Tunisia. There exists a complete version, but not in full-scale. 
It was used in the United States for the creation of the insert shots. That complete miniature is four stories tall. So the crew was a bit late arriving in Tunisia and got there just as the tourist season was beginning. To make matters worse, they ran into terrible weather. Cold, heat, wind, rain, dramatic conditions that might have been advantageous for some other film, but not for this one. Still, by working odd hours and making the most of the good days that they did have, they left Tunisia only a few days off schedule. So what do you think about that? The aspect of having to rearrange such drastic things as the bantha, the sand crawler, going back and forth between Tunisia and the Mojave Desert. Well, these are problems of making movies. I mean, nowadays, you know, you kind of think, well, they <laughs> have those problems all the time. But it must have been something really different back then. And so they they managed with, with what they had. And, and yet building these things that don't really exist... You know, how do you do that? So they had to come up with some way. But, but at least because it doesn't exist, that means that people could, they could build it however, however they could do it within their budget and make it look as real as they could. And, you know, and people would accept it because we don't know what it's supposed to look like. And I think that was a stroke of genius, just doing the lower portion of the sand crawler because that's what we saw. Yes, and that worked. I mean, it's like, you know, Sort sort of a trick of the eye. I mean, because we don't even we don't even think about that when we're watching the movie. Calling all aliens. The Cantina sequence was also troublesome. To get it done, after just returning to London from Tunisia, the company went into the French system of filming. The workday starts at noon and proceeds from uninterrupted eight hours. They kept a lunch wagon on the side at all time. Lucas was determined to make the scene a classic among fantasy and science fiction extravaganzas. In the story, Luke and Ben and the two robots go to a rough dive in the port town of Moss Eisley to recruit a pilot who is a mercenary enough to take them into dangerous space without asking questions. In the cantina, they met lovable, if unscrupulous, Han Solo, a smuggler and pirate with a patched-together hot rod of a spacecraft. From the novel. Luke found himself squinting as they entered in the cantina. Luke was astonished at the variety of beings making use of the bar. There were one-eyed creatures and thousand-eyed, creatures with scales, creatures with fur, and some with skin that seemed to ripple and change consistently according to their feelings at the moment. Hovering near the bar itself was a towering insectoid Luke glimpsed only as a threatening shadow. The Star Wars makeup man was Stuart Freeborn, presumably most famous for his ape suits in 2001. Freeborn had completed his costume for Chewbacca, Han Solo's seven-foot furry sidekick, and was working on assorted aliens that were to populate the cantina when he was taken seriously ill and was rushed to the hospital. Already behind, the company had no choice but to make do with the best aliens that they could come up with, without Freeborn. He got out of the hospital, Lippincott explains, just about the time we had finished making the cantina sequence, maybe a little after. He was never able to offer us his expertise, and we really needed him. The inadequacies of the scene haunted Lucas. After the company had completed its 17 weeks in London, Lucas called in artist 
Macquarie, and an underground newspaper editor known for his wild imagination, Ron Cobb, for assistance. Eventually, George had practically everything redone here, with all new creatures edited into the film. The sequence turned out somewhat different from the painting and the way it was originally conceived. While both Lippincott and I were admiring the set of Macquarie paintings, which are now arrayed splendidly on the wall behind his desk, he mentioned, to wrap up our interview, various other problems and solutions encountered in making the look of the film conform to these pre-production masterpieces. Okay, what do you think about that? I think that's one of the most iconic scenes in Star Wars. And can you imagine it wasn't supposed to look like that? Well, there's so many different ways you could do aliens, I guess, that, um, that, yeah, they could, I mean, again, they could just do it however, however they wanted. But, yeah, okay, okay, first of all, I thought it was interesting. So, the book says, like, Luke walks in, and, and it's like, Luke was also amazed at this, just like we were the audience. He, he had never seen all of these different aliens either. And he's lived there his whole life. Right. But he had just never been to that port, to that city. Yes. But, um, yeah, and making the aliens, that, that is neat because it really was such an eye-catching scene. I mean, you really do look at it back then. And, and, and certainly the audience back then had, had never seen anything like this. You gotta figure, I was a little guy at the time, but my uncle, so, let's see. My uncle would have been probably in his late twenties. And he thought that that cantina scene was absolutely amazing, like which oh, yeah, which totally yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yes that that was definitely iconic, and and the music too. You know, that music became iconic too. Absolutely. So it was like different levels of complexity to that scene, but to think that when we compare it to the book, a flying insectoid hovering above the bar, an alien with rippling skin, wouldn't see any of that. But we did see a lot of aliens, and there was so much there visually that you would have to, you know, like you need to have it on DVD now and pause and to to look at everything. Mm-hmm. Here was another challenge. Needed more space. We used one other stage in England besides those at Elstree, the huge stage at Shepperton, which at one time was the largest in the world. We needed it. For the two hangar sequences on the Death Star and at Maz Eisley, and for the throne room sequence that plays under the end titles. Big as the stage was, it was never quite big enough. Everything around the ship became a stationary object, and the hangar sets were completely built around the ships to cut down on expenses. I mean, they used the actual walls of the stage and just redid them, because the hangars had to take up that much space. The throne room, the painting looks like something from Land of the Pharaohs, also proved a problem. The huge stage was just not big enough. They had to work out forced perspectives to simulate the vastness. Still, it did not turn out quite as vast as the painting shows it. And so, of course, there's a painting here that makes it look like it was huge. And you could tell that there was matte painting work, even painting work with the physical beings in the foreground. They're like cardboard cutouts. I mean, it was one of those things that I never noticed when I was younger, but it was 
absolutely when when you're being picky and looking for things but i thought it was grand i thought it was beautiful but it really wasn't up to george's standards but that was what he had to do at the time and and so they actually needed a bigger film studio than 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 they could do that they could have at the time so just imagine like how how big he really wanted it and again it shows that what a grand scale the movie was supposed to be well if you think about if you look at movies of the grand scale since we're, we're talking about that there weren't science fiction movies that were a grand scale the only ones that were were these massive historical productions gone with the wind ben hur 10 commandments things like that so and those were more like outside scenes that were the big scenes. Absolutely. So he was looking for something, a, a massive military presence. So he had to fudge some of it. But I think it, the end product was incredibly impressive. Well, yeah, that's why we're still talking about it today. <laughs> rockets, rockets everywhere. The rockets and their dogfights battle sequences gave the SFX men fits. They actually built a full-scale X-Wing and full-scale Y-Wing, about half the pirate ship as well. These are quite small in comparison to some of the larger vessels like the Star Destroyer and the Death Star itself, which we've been saying is 200 miles in diameter. I don't know what it really is when you compare it to other objects in the pictures with it. The Leviathan ships were miniature, of course. While the filming was still going on in England, here they were still into research for the special effects that would have to be inserted into the film. They had to work out this whole thing involving movement at unbelievable speeds. They did not want to go for the lyrical movement Kubrick went for in 2001. They spent a lot of time studying, frame by frame, footage of actual aerial dogfights. Then they did storyboard on that part and readapted it for our own dogfights. I think they did four complete storyboards before they were satisfied with the dogfight climax. They developed a new way of doing optical effects, a way of layering the different elements of the pictures so as not to encounter grain by going to too many generations of negatives. Kubrick of 2001 faced a different problem. He had to put all the elements of the shot in the same picture and just shoot and shoot until they got it right. It was very expensive. A good deal of our budget went into research and development. Some of the space work was done with stop-motion animation. Some involved computer-generated images. Charles Lippincott's unabashed enthusiasm for the film is always evident as he speaks of the project of his friend George Lucas's brainchild. Clearly, he could entertain for days with behind-the-scenes glimpses into the creation of a movie that is a success already in his eyes, even before the final touches have been added. The film is almost finished from what I saw last week. There are still a few opticals to incorporate. And the article ends there. <laughs> I mean, the dogfight scenes were fantastic, and seeing how George modeled them after real war dogfights is a credit to adding that layer of fantasy but with reality so so they they actually were based on real dogfights that's why it looked so real 
and it was neat to see it in space you know instead of the blue sky behind them we see it in outer space which is like i mean for kids that just has to be like the best thing ever like watching the these ships and the um and the lasers and everything and all of the all of that action and movement it, and it's actually in three dimensions every other sci-fi we were talking about this earlier every single sci-fi that we could think of previous to star wars was slow moving naval based ships that was the standard but star wars redefined it made everything fast paced had the little the smaller ships that could fly like planes that could be in in these dogfights. Plus, it still had the big ships too. Exactly, we had that contrast. Yes, massive contrast, the world building, well, universe yeah. building. So, I mean, you have the large ship that has all the people that has the Emperor and Darth Vader and all the soldiers, the stormtroopers, and then you have the individual ships that could be flown by by the pilots, the fighters. Which which made sense. So, so there's there's a list of credits here too, conceived, written, and directed by George Lucas. So the thing on this, yeah, okay. So it's got, you know, so it has you know David Prowse, Darth Vader, Peter Mayhew, Chewbacca. Now it says also featuring Anthony Daniels and Kenny Baker. See, it doesn't say who they played in it because that. I wonder if they're really just trying to keep the illusion there of. of R2-D2 and C-3PO being robots. If I'm not mistaken, there was a, a later Starlog article, and we're talking way later, uh-huh. like late 80s, where Anthony Daniels said they weren't allowed to give interviews. Kenny Baker and Anthony Daniels were not allowed to give interviews because they wanted that mystery there. That was by design. Yes, okay. And he was frustrated because he's such a personable person. I mean, you've met him at Con before. Yes. It, so it, it's funny to, to look at how George masterminded so many levels of this movie. Not just behind the scenes, not in just creation, pre-production, post-production, but also the marketing and how it would be presented to the world. So he was really thinking on all levels. It's just amazing. I mean, this was, you know, it, it wasn't his first movie, but of course it was the biggest, his biggest movie at the time. And he just had it planned out so well. Absolutely. Advertisement for Audiorama. Science fiction records. Spoken word LPs, such as 2001 Space Odyssey. Isaac Asimov's Foundation. Ray Bradbury's Illustrated Man, and H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. All of these you could probably find now on YouTube, just the audio part, if you want to listen to it. We've listened to a ton of them. They're fun. Yeah, because we, we've we found a lot of a lot of these old records that someone just uploaded on YouTube. But then, but if you want the original records, you could probably still get them on eBay. Comic book and 45 record sets, such as The Amazing Spider-Man, Incredible Hulk, Planet of the Apes, only $1.49 each. Future conventions. SpaceCon 4, June 17th through 19th, 1977, in Los Angeles, California. Sci-Fi Horror and Fantasy World Expedition 77, June 2nd through 5th, 1977, in Tucson, Arizona. Now what are they? Oh, okay. They called it 77. That that's just because that's of the, the year. Yeah. I mean, it's not because it's not because it's the 77th con- convention. Okay, just checking. Huh? 
Westercon 30, Vancouver, British Columbia. Well, I mean, maybe someday we'll get to the ones that we went to. <laughs> Rivercon 3, Louisville, Kentucky. Oakcon, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Infinite Star, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. SpectrumCon, Houston, Texas. Phoenix Fan Convention, August 26-28, Phoenix, Arizona. SunCon, Miami Beach, Florida. SaltCon, Salt Lake City, Utah. What do you think about that name, SaltCon? Yeah, it's funny. Chattacon 3, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Oh. That's still going on. Isn't that amazing? amazing? Yes. January 68, 1978. So they're really planning ahead. I love this insert. We're going into space 1999 blueprints for the Eagles. And it goes down to the various designs of the Eagles. This is one of the things I love about Starlog Magazine is the bonuses. Remember last time they put in some 3D glasses with oh, the yeah, 3D so, insert? Yeah, so this time it's, it's blueprints that and you can pull blue. out. <laughs> they're actually right? blue. Yeah. Right? It's not just yeah, the, yeah. It, it, it looks like a real blueprint. Uh, I, I love the design of the eagles and the fact that there are little nuances that you could tell the difference between them. And not only is it a blueprint, but also it breaks down like the transporter eagles have a standard passenger pod and it could accommodate eight passengers in addition to the pilot and the co-pilot. And the Renaissance eagles, they look similar to the transporter pods on the outside, but they're equipped with various types of sentry devices for exploratory missions. And then this one that's right on the front, we see that it's an eagle with red stripes on it. That means that it's a rescue eagle, and it's adapted for field diagnosis and treatment of injuries or, or diseases. And then the freighter eagles have cargo pods on it. So even from a distance, we... We might think that the eagles are all the same, but these details and blueprints show otherwise. They were all different kinds, but they were all called eagles. Mm-hmm. And and also they said that they um that they tried to base it on on insects because insects fly, so they're thinking about trying to make it based on something that flies. And I never noticed that before, but it kind of does look like the head of. Grasshoppers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, on Star Trek, the, the Jim Hadar, what did they call those ships? Beetles or something? Oh, did they? Or I never cockroaches that. or what? I thought they looked like beetles. <laughs> Article about Atlantillion returns to the airwaves. On May 7th, NBC TV aired their second Man from Atlantis film, The Death Scots. Um, I never saw the second Man of Atlantis film. I had the comic book of the first one. Wasn't familiar with this. I did not see him, but it does look interesting here. And I know, and Patrick Duffy, of course, he became famous on Dallas after that show. Yeah. Advertisement, you can launch your own rocket ship. Special offer to Starlog readers from Century Rockets. This is the type of thing that I would see in hobby shops, but I never had one before. There's an ESS Raven Flying Laboratory, which is over 30 inches long, Eagle Transporter and Power Pad, and USS America Presidential Command. So they range from 9 to $17. 
one of these days I want I want to get one of those rocket kits. And obviously there's quite a few Star Trek articles in the magazine. We saved that for Starpod Trek. We condensed them all together. State of the Art. A Column of Opinion by David Gerald. Now this is pretty interesting. Author David Gerald wanted to be part of, of the Planet of the Apes phenomena. He was in line for writing the adaption of the film Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And so, because he, he fit the criteria, he was good, he was cheap, he was fast, and he knew his way around the, a motion picture script. So he admitted that th that was the criteria that they were looking for, that he qualified, but also, he wanted to be in the movie. So what did they do? Well, he asked to be in the movie, <laughs> yeah. and, and they let him do it. Which is awesome. He was one of the extras. I never knew that before. I didn't either, and the, and there's pictures of him here when they were uh, putting the makeup on him and everything. I mean, yeah, I'm sure he had a great time. Even though, of course, and he talks about a few of the problems in this article too, which was pretty funny. But took but him yeah, three hours to put on the makeup, yeah, which I amazing. think is pretty quick because you hear some of the other stars putting on prosthetics, and you know they're marathons. Yeah, you could you could be sitting in that makeup chair a long time. But they did admit because they weren't doing close-up scenes, the detail didn't have to be as exacting around the mouth area, whereas they would with, with Roddy McDowell or any of the other actors. So three hours was acceptable for, for well, someone was probably in the min Yeah, minimum. So mm -hmm. the other, the ones that had speaking parts had, had to spend much more time. And uh, so there was a the problem of things, you know, just something simple like eating. It, it was hard to, like he, he said he had to... Um, Eat with a fork and, and like use it to go all the way over his lips and into his mouth. I mean, like. <laughs> and no spaghetti. You right, made a yeah, point. No yeah. spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> and then using the bathroom was, was an experience. And oh, that was, <laughs> was hysterical. It said that he put his ape-like hands down and he was comparing. <laughs> to, yeah. <laughs> I mean, use your imagination. But, but it, and, and I have to, you know, I always relate everything to Star Trek. You know, when David Gerald was in the motion picture and, he said he had to have help going to the bathroom because of that Star Trek uniform. It was all one piece. Mm-hmm. Rocket Ship XM from the Brink of Oblivion. Now, I've heard the story of this guy before. This is really curious. This guy, you mean the... This, 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 this collector. Uh, it's, it's a yes. fascinating story. His name is Wade Williams. He was a movie buff, movie collector from Kansas City, Missouri, and he desperately wanted to save old black and white science fiction films. And the idea is these films, they fall apart within time. They they have to go through a transfer process. They deteriorate. Process. Yes. And, yeah. Plus, they, and when films are in theaters, they, they have to be handled a lot, too, so that, mm -hmm. you know, so they don't really stay in pristine condition. So, so this man collects films. Now, he also was a movie maker himself, this mm -hmm. says. But uh, for this movie, Rocket Ship XM, so it, it's his favorite science fiction movie. And he, you know, so he, and it took him a while to actually track down a copy of it. Yes. And it's a story of, okay, this is pre-internet time. Yes. <laughs> he has to just keep tracking down, looking up people's names, inquiring. You, know, you live in Kansas City. You're, you're not near... New York or L.A. where these people would be that were involved in a project. So explains that he had flying to do. 
he had not only researched, but he had to physically go places to meet people to track down these original films. And he couldn't, he found a collector that had some original pieces to it. He couldn't afford it at a time, so he made some more films of his own because he was a small time filmmaker, built up the money, went back. I mean, it's just a back and forth of trying to find either pieces of the film or the trailers for the film. There's there's multiple levels of film collecting. Yes, so he found all this stuff. I mean, he had to be the most tenacious person in the world, I mean, to, to keep at it like this. And it, it took him so much time. I mean, over years, like, I mean, sometimes not, not uh, working on that project, but working on things for his own life and mm-hmm. then getting back to this and finding out where he could go to get another piece. And it also mentioned that you know, by the 70s, the 50s films were kind of going by the wayside, so people didn't care about it. The studios didn't view it as historical. That's they, right. They were just going, they said if he did not save them, because he goes on to collecting other films as well, if he didn't save them, they would have completely deteriorated. Yeah, and now we would think, oh, what that would be terrible. you know. But back then, no one really cared except for this guy. Mm-hmm. And now another thing, this because... He said this movie was in 1950 and that it was the first science fiction movie. But, you know, we had already read in Starlog that Destination Moon was the first science fiction movie. And it makes that comparison. Yes, and they even talk about it in here. They both came out in 1950. But I looked it up. Now, now this rocket ship movie actually came out a a month before Destination Moon. So this one actually came out first. But it's just the craziest thing that historically Destination Moon is considered the first American science fiction full-length movie. I mean, there's multiple levels of being the first. Yeah, there's different you know, ways that Metropolis they classify. Metropolis came out before that, but it wasn't American. It wasn't, but oh, okay. But there were such similarities between Rocketship XM and Destination Moon to the point where Rocketship XM had to change it. Right, they were being made at the same time, and and it said that George Powell actually threatened to sue them because their movie was too much like his, and mm-hmm. so they changed. So this one, Rocket Ship XM, became more about Mars. They went to Mars instead of the Moon. Mm-hmm. So they changed it just because um, originally it was going to be about the Moon, just like Destination Moon. And this collector, where the article is focused on, Wade Williams. He said one of the reasons why he really loved this movie as a kid and he, he hunted it down because he wasn't seeing it in repeats on television is because it was constantly being compared to Destination Moon. But he liked this one better because of the characterization, whereas Destination Moon could have been used as a training video for NASA. And we know that later mm-hmm. on that there were elements of that movie that they did use for training well yes and so, that, so it's not a bad thing that it's it not was a bad like thing, that but it's just a different it's like it's, it's, a it's crazy so, yeah, to so, think that so this one just it, you know whatever speaks to your soul you know this is the mm-hmm. one that he liked more but it's it's his story of he loved it that much that he just continued and that that was the thing before vcrs right i guess vcrs were out at that time in 1977 but not many but I people guess had them. Not many people had them. But if you could get the originals. Oh, wouldn't that just be it's awesome? It's just amazing, it, isn't <laughs> it? Starlog presents the magical techniques of movie and TV special effects. Part 2 Science Fiction's Iron Man. 
Robbie the Robot. Now, it's funny that we're reading the story about Robbie the Robot after we just got talking about Star Wars droids. Yes, I mean, it's... How different they are. Well, because what you, we think of Robbie the Robot as a robot. And as we just said, the droids we don't really think of as robots. And Robbie the Robot, as this article goes on to say, was in a ton of science fiction movies, TV shows. Ended up being, anytime someone wanted a robot, they just put Robbie the Robot in there. He was a famous movie star. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, so he started out on the, on, Forbidden Planet, that movie, mm-hmm. and he must have That's been... That's the most like, iconic. When we see yes. that movie poster, we think of that, sure. He was the first uh, robot, not the first robot, but the first one that was appealing. The first mm-hmm. one that was... He was basically the most human-like robot at the time. And it did have a person inside there. It did, so... But it... it he still moved in a very robotic way. Well, because, because of that suit. I mean, how else could the person walk but mm-hmm. stiffly, like a robot... Robbie ended up dressing up as Sherlock Holmes. It's amazing what he did. Um, and he, he was on Lost in Space. Now, a lot of people think that the Lost in Space robot was Robbie the Robot. But he wasn't. And But Robbie he the was Robot just robot. Was, yeah, they just called him Robot. And there were... And, and Robbie the Robot was on two episodes of Lost in Space. So then you can see the two ro- robots together and see how different they are. Mm-hmm. But I know I saw Robbie the Robot on an episode of Wonder Woman. I mean, <laughs> Isn't that crazy when you think about that? We're talking decades later. Oh, yeah. Later than Forbidden Planet. Yes. 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 So we're saying multiple decades he was featured in films and television. And Robbie Robot would show up at conventions. Which is neat, too. I mean, well, people, you know, make their own suits and everything. But the, um, let's see, Frankie Darrow was the original actor that was, that was inside the robot. Mm-hmm. And and it says that he fell, he almost fell several times because the suit is so confining and because it's so hard to walk. It's amazing that when when people of 50s, 60s, and 70s, of, of if they were kids during that time, if you were to say, what are your top three robots, it's always going to come up, Robbie the Robot's going to be in that list somehow, some way, because he was just everywhere. And when you read the article and you look at the pictures, you realize why he's so recognizable because they just kept using this suit over and over and over again. And there there was something that he was on, another movie called Invisible Boy, where where they made him evil, and that was not as well received because mm-hmm. people already knew him as being a nice robot at that time. That was why everyone loved him. So after that, he just stayed a nice robot. Even in Columbo. Like, how crazy is that Imagine showing up that. in Columbo? I, I did not see that episode. <laughs> <laughs> and the shell of the original robot is actually at a museum, so it has been preserved. Yes. And it mentions that his most recent appearances were in Filmation's Arc 2. Oh, yes. I don't remember him, but I did see that show. <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing the things he's been on. The article finishes by saying, again, Robbie is cast as a sort of sympathetic role for which he is so famous, the unique thinking machine or tool that mankind cannot turn itself against. Does his self-immortalization at the end of Arc 2 episode eliminate any future appearances? Not at all, says Bill Malone. That's another unique characteristic of robots. They're a bit godlike. You see, a robot never really dies. You can always rebuild him. Well, that's true. Dressed this way, she's a Navy wave. 
But beneath that uniform, she is the Wonder Woman doll. And now you can create your own Wonder Woman adventures with these other dolls. Major Steve Trevor, Nubia, Wonder Woman Super Foe. Gotcha, Wonder Woman, Major Steve Trevor, and Nubia dolls sold separately by Mego. Hey everybody, this is Rick. Rick's Comic City in Nashville, Clarksville, and Fort Campbell. We've been serving the Nashville area for over 20 years. On October 14th, we'll be in Clarksville for five years. And we've been at Fort Campbell for two. It's crazy to think about how much we've done how much we've grown and it's all thanks to you guys uh, we thank you and uh, we hope to have 20 more years Starlog Magazine issue number 8 cover date September 1977 including fantastic color photos science fiction TV preview special effects part 3 model animation the fly. I mean, here we go. Another cover that deals with production work, behind the scenes work. It's a model maker modeling a dinosaur. Not as good a picture as the previous issue. <laughs> not as not, it, it doesn't draw your attention like the previous issue of an X-wing fighter and, and a Tie fighter. But this is intriguing. When I was a kid, I liked any behind the scenes things because I was so curious. How do they make these fantastic things? So it's a man with a model of a dinosaur. From the Bridge by Carrie O'Quinn As I was leaving the theater after my first screening of Star Wars, I heard two people arguing about the scientific accuracy of some of the film's dialogue. Someone walking up the next aisle also heard and shouted across the room, So what? He was right. So was everyone in the audience who gasped and hissed when Darth Vader first appeared, a looming figure steeping ominously through a smoke-filled doorway. So was everyone who cheered with delight when Han Solo propelled his customized starship into faster than light speed to escape the Imperial troops. So was everyone who sat paralyzed during the end tiles, tears rolling down their cheeks, so thrilled with John Williams' magnificent music and with the adventure that they had just lived through that they wished it would never end. Star Wars is a supreme example of what can happen when a creator has a vision, and by some miracle is permitted to carry through and build his vision into a true work of art. In this case, the man with the vision was George Lucas. He has given us a film of uncompromising integrity with a spirit so innocent and positive as to be almost as alien in today's culture as the creatures in the cantina sequence. I have no idea what behind-the-scenes battles Lucas fought in order to achieve this result, but I and every other person who has been thrilled by Star Wars owe this man a profound thank you. Lucas really didn't have the track record Hollywood studios usually demand before they turn over a nine and a half million dollars, but somebody powerful up there at 20th Century Fox likes us and has the brains to evaluate a vision along with the guts to give the creator a free hand. Between the power and the vision, we were treated to a rare piece of inspiration that hits us like pure oxygen. 
It doesn't make us want to battle the Death Star, but it does make us anticipate battles that we can fight, and it gives us the spiritual fuel we need for preparing. George Lucas has presented us with a dramatization of the spirit he has proved he possesses. Our world desperately needs exciting, challenging visions in order to help us see beyond the dull details of everyday life, to see dullness for what it is rather than expecting it to be all there is. The more we expect from life, the more we demand of our lives, and the more battles we are eager to fight in order to achieve our greatest ambitions. A culture that does not dream of the stars is doomed to stagnation. Many a young life will be changed forever by the inspiration that Star Wars engenders, and consequently, so will the world. <laughs> I mean, those were his feelings after watching Star Wars. Yeah, that was a great article. I mean, I I know when I when I first read it, it I just thought, wow, he's just amazing. He he put it in a nutshell how awesome Star Wars is, and also this was a transition. Science fiction fans were trained that it's science fiction, emphasis on science. Star Wars is not about that. So look at this. Even early on that there were people that were complaining about Star Wars. Yeah, about Hard the, to believe, the technology huh? saying it's not right. But I mean, but this, so this is in 1977, and Kerry O'Quinn, the editor-in-chief, was saying, um, Many a, a young life will be changed by by Star Wars. Mm -hmm. So he knew it even then. Yes, that it was something special. Communications. Saving space. I would like to make an official announcement about the condition of Space 1999. Jerry Anderson has told me that there is no personal argument between himself and ITC, but it does seem to be all washed up between them. But ITC is not only hope for the continuum of 1999. One possibility is ABC's Patrick Plevin, who is on their programming staff and is interested in buying the rights from ITC and continuing the series. If we are to save 1999, we must make all contributions like writing letters, contacting other fans, and spreading information around. And it gives an address. Hey, last issue, there was someone talking about bringing back the prisoner. Now... Because of the announcement of cancellation of Space 1999, they want to do another letter-writing campaign. Fans were vocal back in 77. They were. Um, I mean, what you do now is you get on social media. But, um, I mean, I mean, I know it was, well, again, like we said before, it was just one of the few science fiction shows that was on back then. And, of course, it was good, too. But, I mean, but, yeah, but, but people wanted to save it because, like, what else did they have? Mm -hmm. I like Space 1999, so too bad it only lasted two seasons. Oh, I know. Yeah, too bad it didn't come back. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Log entries. Danforth resigns. According to SFX ace Jim Danforth, the producers of King Kong have intentionally misled such leading critics as Charles Champlin, Arthur Knight, Richard Schickel, and others into believing that the film's massive gorilla was enacted by a 40-foot-tall robot. In fact, the young, talented makeup artist Rick Baker designed a Kong suit and portrayed the beast throughout most of the film. Now, I know that most of it was a guy in a gorilla suit. It's only certain scenes that 
you knew it was an animatronic. Right. What's the controversy? Like, you can't figure that out? (laughs) (laughs) Four Nebulas Awarded. The 1977 Nebula Awards were presented by Science Fiction Writers of America on April 30th with the ubiquitous Isaac Asimov as Toastmaster. The Nebula Awards were presented in four literary categories. Best Short Story, Charles L. Grant's The Crowd Shadows. Best Novelette, Bicentennial Man by Isaac Asimov. Best Novella, Houston, Houston, Do You Read? by James Tipry Jr. And Best Novel, Frederick Pohl's Man Plus. Another FX man goes uncredited. Gene Warren, one of Hollywood's top veteran special effects artists, has been tallying up a number of prestigious credits for his studio, in particular his work on NBC's Man from Atlantis. Network Science Fiction for the new season. Now this is a large article about all the new things that were coming the fall of 1977 for television. So it's it's like TV Guide, only better because it's like because it's just the sci-fi fantasy shows. So let's talk about some of them. Unfortunately, Fantastic Journey is going bye bye. Yeah, which I was we didn't really fa- get I was, to. Yeah, get that's into. not unfortunate. That's a good thing. Yeah, that, that that was a rough one, Fantastic Journey. But we have to say, Fantastic Journey was very similar to Lost. So I wonder if J.J. Abrams was a Fantastic Journey fan. He might have been. (laughs) (laughs) And Tales of the Unexpected, good show. Space 1999 got lost in the video shuffle. Uh, What about Six Million Dollar Man? It actually came back. Yeah, this article said, so Six Million Dollar Man got renewed. The Bionic Woman, the thing is, that show was dropped by the network, but then picked up by a different network. Mm-hmm. So that means for the new season, Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman will be on different channels, different networks. So they can't really have crossover episodes anymore. But they do still have Oscar Goldman. Somehow they were, both networks were allowed to share him. Which is interesting because they say, uh, is his name Richard Anderson? Yes. Right? Richard Anderson is the only actor to be on two top ten TV shows in the same year on different networks. Wow. Because of that breakup. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It, it's really amazing, though, that he that he could be on both shows. I still mm-hmm. wonder how they worked that out. Yeah, can you imagine? Like, yeah. I'm going to work for Coke, and then on the weekends I'm going to work for Pepsi. Like, how does that yeah, work? That's crazy. Mean, yeah, how do you schedule it, and how mm-hmm. do the two companies allow it? Yeah. Uh, hour-long Man from Atlantis. Logan's Run, Wonder Woman. Well, Wonder Woman was it was another show that got dropped and then and then picked up by a different network. And it got way better on on the next network. Yes, I think so. Once they did jump from World War Two to the seventies, I liked yes. it way better. Seven like that's probably when I I remember that seventies version of Wonder Woman more so than I remember the World War Two version. It makes okay. sense. Okay, so some of the like I know I heard. One of the producers say that really, he he thought it was more fun when she was battling Nazis, and and that's that was more like the comic books too. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I think modernizing it though was a good idea. I liked it better that way. Yes. And it's just like shows now get picked up by, well, you know, like they get dropped by a network and then picked up by Hulu, like like the Orville. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. It, it still happens now. Yeah, mm-hmm. Lucifer. Yes. 
mentions one encouraging sign for the new season is the inclusion of several sci-fi specials in the 77-78 lineup. NBC is working on a full-length animated version of The Hobbit and a miniseries of Huxley's Brave New World, Bradbury's Martian Chronicles, 1984, Stranger in a Strange Land, Future Cop, Quark, Okay. Quite a bit. A lot of that sounds, yeah, like that would be interesting now. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I wish I could see all that. <laughs> Wonder Woman's competition will be Donnie and Marie. So, so you know, they, they put Wonder Woman on at the same time as Donnie and Marie. I wonder what, what did I watch back then? Because I liked both of those shows. I probably watched Wonder Woman. And they talk about the revamped Sanford Arms, which is Sanford and Son minus Sanford and Son. I never saw that, and I'm a massive fan of Sanford and Son. I've seen every episode of that, and they rejuvenated Chico and the Man. I remember watching Chico and the Man as a kid. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but I mean, this was just an amazing time for television because it also talks about comedy will be the enemy next season. According to ABC executive Fred Silverman, drama, adventure, documentary, crime, and science fiction must make way for higher-rated comedy realm. With the few exceptions of Starsky and Hutch, Beretta, and Charlie's Angels, practically every ABC show this fall will be a comedy. What do you say about that? That was the face of TV back then. I know. I, I mean, in my own life, I I went through a period where I where I really preferred comedies over dramas. So so it was just it was just what was the thing back then? And and also, I mean, like in the seventies, you know, variety shows were a big thing. Well, Donnie and Marie was there. Yes. Yep. yep. Uh, quite a few others. I mean, they they I I they were there, but I think that they were on the wane in the late seventies. Yes. So, and I think I know they're sitcoms. definitely on Friday and Saturday nights because I remember them at my grandfather's house. My parents didn't watch it, but my parents had dropped me off at my grandparents. My grandparents loved those variety shows. I loved Comedy them back shows. then. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think there were more sitcoms in the eighties, and so it became a big thing, and. Later, you know, like there were reality shows that became a big thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, TV is like it's the always ebb and changing. Flow. New Frazetta collection. Bantam Books has published Frank Frazetta Book Two, a large format paperback collection of thirty-five full color and eight pen and ink illustrations. Millennium Factor Fiction. Ben Bova's Millennium, published by Delray Books, is a science fiction filler thriller filled with political intrigue in the year 1999. With Earth on the brink of nuclear annihilation, Russian and American lunar colonists must join forces against their home planet in a desperate attempt to save man from himself. Masters of Macabre Terror, the state of violent dread, is the theme and substance of Vic Giala's anthology Feast of Fear from Mariner Books. Safe Space 1999 campaign triggers unexpected results, says Jerry Anderson. And it's very similar to that letter that was written to Starlog. There's a Space 1999 letter writing campaign, and Jerry Anderson is amazed that so many fans want to help. There's a great deal of energy being spent by fans writing to me, to their local stations, and to ITC. Surprise Scene Stealer in Survival Run According to the latest information from 20th Century Fox, Survival Run, originally Damnation Alley, will definitely be released in December of this year. 
Spectre lives up to expectations. Complete with druid ruins, witches, demons, assorted succumbri, arcane spells, mystic seals, and black magic, Gene Roddenberry Spectre premiered on NBC on Saturday, May 21st. Robert Culp and Jin Young were excellent as a modern Americana version of that classic team of criminologists, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. I still have never seen Spectre, have you? No, I haven't seen that one. I, think... I, want, I want to watch that now. Yeah. It looks I... so goofy that it's. I'm compelled to see it. I mean, it looks different from his, from, like, so there were other TV movies he made that were more science fiction. So that's the only one, I guess, that was really that more into, um, more of the, the fantasy type of thing. And I think that one just wasn't as popular as the others. I mean, it didn't come on TV as much. That's why I never got to see it. Hmm. Humanimals star in Dr. Morrow. Currently showing throughout this country is AIP's latest extravaganza, The Island of Dr. Morrow, adapted from the classic novel by H.G. Wells. Although this gothic horror takes place in 1911, Morrow's investigations have timeliness in today's banner headlines. Logan Pilot May Surprise The eagerly awaited Logan's Run Pilot episode, which will air on CBS this fall, may surprise and confuse devotees of the film. Scriptwriters William F. Nolan and Saul David have backed up action to recap the situation and change the last half of the movie. That drove me crazy with the show. Yeah, because like, how you do love you, the how, movie so I love much, the movie so like... much. How do you take off the, the time clocks on their hands? Yeah, they they really made some changes to it, and I mean, maybe that's why the series didn't last long, but I don't know what they could have, if they had stuck closer to the movie, I don't know how much they could have done with a TV series. You're kind of limited because then the end of the movie was just live a normal life, and who wants to watch a show of people just living a normal life? Yeah, Playing with so cats they, all yeah. day. <laughs> Make a show all about people playing with cats. <laughs> So I thought the way they did it was good, and and it could have worked. I guess it just it just the writing could have been better on some episodes, but I mean having them discover different civilizations on Earth, I mean that could have been a good show. Could yeah. have lasted longer. Yeah. Meet Star Loggers at Cons. Three members of the Starlog editorial staff recently appeared at the Creation Con in New York City in a panel session moderated by Jim Burns. The session titled The World of Starlog afforded an opportunity for attendees to question the staff, discuss up-and-coming magazine features, and generally hear some behind-the-scenes stories about publishing a professional newsstand magazine. I would have loved to go to a panel about meeting the staff of Starlog. Now, that's neat, too. This is saying that they're, like, that they're open to going to cons if anyone wants to invite them to their con. <laughs> that's great. And and I actually did see, you know, the one who became the editor, uh, David McDonnell, I did see him at a con one time, and he was pretty nice. That was That's so, awesome. Yeah. And, Where'd you and, meet him? I mean, you know, I don't remember. It might have been Dragon Con. It was one of the cons in I, in Atlanta. But hmm, yeah, th that was neat. Worldwide report on new sci-fi. With most of the movie industry's attention devoted to new science fiction epics, Close Encounters, and Star Wars, a handful of smaller-budget sci-fi films are actively being ignored. Such was not the case at the Cannes Film Festival held earlier this summer in France, where distributors from all over the world tried to sell their wares on the global market. Now, this is the double-edged sword. As much as we love the late 70s sci-fi 
for these enormously popular and successful sci-fi fantasy superhero movies. I mean, they were just after a while, one after another after another, and then once you got into the 80s, it was just you couldn't keep up with them. The downside to that is some of the smaller, less budgeted films were getting lost by the wayside. And so that's going to be the growing pain that we're going to see going forward with with Starlock. Um, what, that Starlock talked about more of the, the popular films. Especially the cover articles, the cover stories. But they still did encompass the whole genre, which I love. That, that it does continue to give us the variety. But we see the disruption at this point. A lot of films were, were getting lost in the shuffle because non-sci-fi fans, that is your average everyday moviegoer, all they wanted to do was see the big blockbusters. And, and that's only normal. But, um, yeah, and because Starlog wanted to sell magazines, they had to talk about the blockbusters. Mm -hmm. But in this article about the independent films, I noticed, like, that they got some famous people to be in some of those independent films. They sure did. I see Christopher Lee is listed in some. And some of them, they list, like, The Further Adventures of Flesh Gordon. Like, what's up with that? Why is that even listed in there? (laughs) I mean, they, yeah, they just had to talk about some. I did notice they they also mentioned Kingdom of Spiders with William Shatner. Yep. <laughs> I didn't realize that was an independent film. I think I saw the previews for that on TV. Return from Witch Mountain? Now, I love Witch Mountain movies. They were Disney? popular, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the Return so to I Witch Mountain So I guess they were getting it? lost in the shuffle because of the success of Star Wars and soon to but be was, Close was Encounters. But was that sequel, was that not made by the same people? It, maybe it wasn't. It's Disney. Oh, it but is. I guess it's one of those things that well, within well, time yeah. it was wearing out. Disney had some smaller budget films too. I think they were still, they were producing so much that some of them were smaller mm. budget than others. Spielberg Speaks, Close Encounter, Secrecy Breached. Director Steven Spielberg has finally broken his code of silence regarding his forthcoming film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Shrouded in secrecy since its inception, Close Encounters has remained somewhat of an enigma to the world at large. Its location sites in Mobile, Alabama and Gillette, Wyoming were closed to the public. Security guards were given the heave-ho to any visitor not wearing a designated type of identification badge, and all those involved with the movie took a vow of silence, prohibiting them from discussing the film even after production was completed. So Close Encounters was another big hit by Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting that he kept this a secret. Did you know when he would when he did his show Amazing Stories for TV, they kind of they kept all the plots a secret for a while. Well, I'm glad they did for Amazing Stories because okay. I that's all about the element of surprise. But I think that that's Part of the the lure of Close Encounters is even the movie posters. You're looking at it saying, like, what is this? I remember seeing the posters as a kid. I'm like, okay, it looks like a spaceship and, like, a road or something going to it. Like, it was shrouded in mystery. It was. I mean, well, that was just a good, that was a good poster for Mm -hmm. for the advertisement of the movie. So it's interesting. This article said that Steven Spielberg does not believe in UFOs. At least, he, like he's there's never been any real evidence of them. <laughs> there has never been. Yeah, what's the um, what's the scientist that we both like? The black Neil deGrasse guy, Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. He says the same thing. He's like, there's no evidence. Right. All I'm the, not saying there isn't. Yeah. I'm just saying there's no evidence. 
there, there's pictures, but they're fuzzy pictures and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Spielberg is currently editing Close Encounters of the Third Kind down to a suitable running time for its Christmas release later this year. Bits and Pieces. There will be a new underwater movie, Sea Trench, based on the novel by Martin Caden. This Howard G. Minsky production concerns an underwater civilization and is scheduled for release in 78. Production on The Micronauts was temporarily stalled due to some script problems. Producer Harry Saltzman says that the London production will feature some revolutionary special effects. New Creation Spark Bond Movie An ambitious automobile, the wet bike, and the construction of the world's largest soundstage are some of the creations that give a new look to the latest James Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me. The underwater automobile, especially adapted Lotus Esprit, looks and handles on land as does an ordinary Lotus. But underwater, modifications enable it to cruise submerged at the speed of 7.2 knots at a depth of 45 feet. Now, we got to see at SpyCon a mock-up of the Lotus that was modified to run on land. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was really cool. It was, I mean, it looked just like it. And, mm-hmm. and of course, we saw it on land, right? We were standing right next to it. And um, so the, the owner of that car was there, right? And we spoke to him. That's right. And from what I'm seeing, this is the first mention of James Bond in Starlog. I think so. But we know as time goes on, James Bond is going to be cover articles and because James Bond does have that sci-fi element. Yes, and because he had such a big fan base. And so Starlog could, of course, you know, sell more copies with, with articles about James Bond. A Starlog TV Spectacular Issue number 9 will be the first for Starlog. The entire magazine will be devoted to science fiction on television, and our staff has been busy assembling an incredible lineup of personal interviews and feature articles. We love sci-fi television late 70s, so looking forward to that. I mean, it's hard to believe they didn't already do that. They're saying that's the first time that they're covering, like, like that everything will be about sci-fi TV shows. Well, remember recent, uh, previously they did one that was all about behind-the-scenes people. Yes. Artists, creators. But some of that was about movies, not yes. just TV shows. Yes. So they, they did a specific focal point before, and, and I can see why they're doing that, because 70, 78, 77, 78 season was pretty good. They had some great stuff Th- going There was on a lot there. of stuff to yeah. talk about then. Anatomy of the Fly, an insect that turned into a gem. Now, this is an article about the 1950s Vincent Price film, The Fly. So it's it's a retro article, essentially. Before they did that, uh, the remake. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, but this movie, and they said it was actually low budget, and it was one of those unexpected hits. I loved it. I absolutely loved this movie. And oftentimes you'll see this listed in horror, yes. but when you break it down, it's technically sci-fi. A guy you didn't that see turns it as into... horror. No, I see. Okay. It's it's it goes. What were we talking about? Frankenstein is Frankenstein horror or science fiction? Yeah, it technically on how it's you science see it. fiction, yeah. but it does straddle the line. It's and this intri- movie. This I'm movie sorry? had um, David Hedison as as the one who became the fly, and he later went on to do 
Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and he played Felix Slider in some James Bond movies. Mm-hmm. And of course, and Vincent Price was in it. Yeah, it's this turned into a cult classic, and it could have been just a man creates a monster, monster eats a man, man destroys monster cliche, but it ends up being a cinematic tragedy. Welcome back to the wars. Starlog continues its coverage of the most glorious space fantasy ever conceived and realized on the screen. Star Wars is destined to become the definitive film of the genre. All SF movies that follow it will unavoidably be compared with wars. The work that went into making the cinemagic is staggering. Over 70 people are listed in the miniature and optical effects credits for the film. Hundreds more added their behind-the-camera expertise to production. We salute these unseen craftsmen and their incredible achievement. Here we present the on-screen heroes of the ultimate experience for all sci-fi and movie fans. Star Wars. So, this essentially is a series of photos. And, you know, when I was younger, I saw Star Wars in 1979 at the re-release. So, before that, all I had were pictures and magazines and storybooks. So, with stuff like this, this is how I knew the story of Star Wars. Just a series of stills. Like pictures and magazines. That's it. Well, well, there are also the action figures and the oh, cards. Oh, I totally. Mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that was all part of it. But just think about it then, to be a fan in 1977 without the internet, without a VCR, this is the only way that you can really relive the movie without seeing the movie again, or things like this. So it's a series of, of photos of each of the characters with a little blurb underneath each one, such as, Luke Skywalker is Mark Hamill's first important screen role, but he felt right at home. Mark has been a science fiction fan for years. Now he finds himself the object of fan adoration. Alec Guinness is a true giant of the silver screen. Impressed by his professionalism, George Lucas allowed him to improvise some of the dialogue as the production moved along. Harrison Ward, it doesn't say Ford, it says Ward. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Ready's one of the deadly looking hand weapons used in the film. To ensure their authenticity, real English pistols were dressed up and utilized. C-3PO and R2-D2 are essential major characters, if not the outright heroes of the production. Movie magic and real robotics are skillfully blended to present totally believable thinking machines. Peter Mayhew smiles for the camera dressed as Chewbacca, the Wookiee. The credit for Chewie's appearance goes to makeup man Stuart Freeborn. Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia, is another relative unknown chosen by George Lucas. That status will quickly change after this role. Peter Cushing, Grand Moff Tarkin, plays his evil character to the hilt. Star Wars is quite a step up from the B-horror flicks. That's actor David Prowse in the Darth Vader costume. It was designed to make him appear as inhuman as possible, and it does. There's a photo above of the burning Jawas. There's a sand, uh, sand crawler that's all devastated land speeder it says above ben kenobi luke r2d2 and c3po discover the remains of a stormtrooper attack on a sand crawler and its inhabitants 
Special effects pervade every aspect of the film, and they are extremely effective. The hovercraft hovers. The droids are obviously not human. Autonomous machines. The space battles have to be seen to be believed. And then there's a photo of Luke with the droids and stormtroopers next to that. The opposing forces in the movie are clearly drawn. There is no doubt as to who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Witness Luke Skywalker, the picture of teenage innocence. Compare him with the troops of the Empire, intimidating, inhuman stormtroopers. Saturday Morning TV. Once a week, the youth of America join in a massive orgy of imaginative adventures while their parents close the door and look the other way. Okay, what do you think about that title for this article? It's funny. <laughs> uh, shows a picture of shows that I loved. I mean, Shazam? I love Shazam on Saturday morning TV. I did too. Yeah, Shazam and Isis. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting how this article says, like in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, Kids used to go to the movies and watch cartoons. That's what my grandparents used to say. Yeah, they say yeah. call them Saturday matinees. So, so they did that for kids in theaters, but then, and then they started showing the movies on TV for kids. So, so at first it was just the movies on TV that had been shown in theaters. Mm-hmm. Then the TV stations realized they could have new TV shows for kids, and so that started. Around the 60s, and so and sto- so, still continued into the 70s and 80s. Oh, totally. Arc 2, great picture of the I used to love there. Arc 2, yeah. The Planet of the Apes cartoon. Yeah, you mentioned Isis, great picture of her. I-, I tell you what, I had such a crush on her. She was She's beautiful. beautiful. There's no and doubt her costume was great, too. Oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, Land of the Lost, another great 70s Saturday morning live action show. You watched that, yeah, didn't they, you? Yeah, I did. So they had... You know, I mean, it wasn't just cartoons. They did all these live-action shows, too. There were too, quite a few were, of live-action. Yeah. I'd say more live-action shows. Probably half and half in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. I'd say more it was an 80s thing to have all cartoons, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, because, I I mean, I loved those live-action shows. I mean, I still watch the cartoons, too. But, I mean, it, yeah, they were both good. Mm-hmm. And the, um, like the Sid and Marty Croft shows, those had people that, you know, Electro Woman and Dinah Girl. That's and, right. That's yeah, right. Yes. Those shows. Yes. And it shows pictures of them. It mentions them. Uh, yeah, those Croft Super Shows, that is total late 70s right there. Just just goofiness. Pure goofiness. New Adventures of Batman. Always watch that, though. Yes. Yes. Super Friends. And we were oh, both yeah. super. I mean, <laughs> Super Friends was just... If, if I were to say there's one cartoon that I was obsessed with... My entire childhood on Saturday morning, I would say that's the top one because it went that through one, so many iterations. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the Super Friends, this picture here is the one where they had Wendy and Marvin, but then later on, those two were gone and they had, they had Zan and Jaina who were actually superheroes. Mm-hmm. And they, when they added the challenge of the Super Friends that had with the Legion of Doom, oh, that was just the best. A- absolutely. Yeah. It, it continued on. Big John, Little John, I never saw that show before, have you? No, I don't remember. I probably, it kind of sounds familiar, but I don't think I saw it. Far Out Space Nuts? <laughs> yeah, you were an Arc 2 fan. Yes, even I, though I think that show was even, it was a little too mature for me when, when I was watching it at that age. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, Saturday morning I still shows watched it. In, in 77 were fantastic. And Dr. Shrinker, another one of those Croft shows, that was good. I never saw that before. Don't remember him. The other ones I remember. 
I mean, Land of the Lost was the big one. I would just love singing along with that song, too. Oh, yeah. Marshall, Will, and Holly. <laughs> Advertisement for Doctor Who books. I believe this is the first time we're seeing mention of Doctor Who in Starlog. So it's in an advertisement form. Dollar ninety-five each, dollar ninety each. There's the monster book. Uh, I, actually, we have that monster book, and a, a variety of episode episodes that were transferred to to book form. Starlog presents the magical techniques of movie and TV special effects, part three: model animation. Now, this is really fascinating. It talks about, in 1922, Harry Houdini. Apparently, he was a science fiction fan, or science fiction at that time was fantasy as well. And he was he was talking to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who's known for... The writer of Sherlock Holmes. So let's talk about this interaction that they had. Well, apparently they were friends back then. So, so yeah, this... The, in some ways, they were opposite because Houdini was part of this skeptics group. That, I mean, you know, Houdini was a magician, but he knew that magic wasn't real. That's the thing. He knew he knew how to how to trick people into thinking that that what he did was real, looked real. Now here's here's the funny thing. Now I'm not going to correct you in that he was part of the American Society of American Magicians, but on a technical level, magicians don't count him as a magician. He was an escape artist. Oh, of course. Yeah, I know what you mean. Now, yes. Isn't that in, like to the layperson, to us? I always viewed him as a magician, but as I became friends with a lot of magicians, they corrected me and said he's not really a magician in the truest magician sense. He was able to promote himself on on such a level that he fell into that category, and it was more the time because the vaudeville time did a lot of stage acts and stage acts with. Escaping, especially life-defying escapes, yes. made more headlines than magicians did. True magicians. Right, because magicians like, weren't known for doing the stuff that's dangerous. Yes. So he did, yeah. So it's so like, you was... know what I was thinking of? Like, Harry, when, when we talk about this, like, okay, was he a magician or not? Technically, he wasn't. That's like saying, is Star Wars science fiction? Well, technically not. It's space fantasy. So <laughs> 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 like, Harry Houdini was the Star Wars of his time. But he knew... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So, so the article was saying that, um, oh, Arthur Conan Doyle had sold the rights to to one of his books, not not one of the home stories, but another story that he wrote, oh, Lost World, mm-hmm. which to, was to about dinosaurs. It, yes, he, they were going to make it into a film. He let he sold the rights to have a film made, and part of um, so they so since this article is supposed to be about models. So they used models to make the dinosaurs, and they made like part of a like a teaser for the movie. Uh, with the, with the models, and it was stop motion model animation. Yes, yes, and it, and it was so well made, and so Arthur Conan Doyle took that to a meeting of of Houdini with these uh, with these other what did you call it the magicians, the the Society of American Magicians. Yes, and and the magicians were actually amazed, like <laughs> at, at how good it was. So they, he he played the film, the yes. snippet from the film. And to them, it was magic. Yeah, I mean, it, it looked magic. Of course, they knew it wasn't, but it was like, but they didn't know how. That's the thing; they didn't know how it was done. Like Penn and Teller fool us trying to figure out how magicians do things. The, this group of magicians did not see how that was done. Now you got to figure this was in 1922. 
King Kong didn't come out until 1933. Right. With, with I mean, the we stop know motion. that stop motion yes. animation. So, like, this must have blown their minds seeing something like this. Yeah, it was, it was probably just the most amazing thing. And, and also, because you know, you know, I told you there was a TV show called Houdini and Doyle that was only on a few years ago. And it took place back in their time period, and it was about the two of them being friends and helping the police solve solve mysterious crimes. And it was, I thought it was a great show. It only lasted one season, but yeah, I thought it was great. Interesting. So it talks about the early stages of science fiction model making and stop motion animation. Obviously, one of the most popular ones of the black and white era was King Kong. I mean, that was really groundbreaking but it all comes down to even at the earliest stages was the skeleton the skeletal work was absolutely necessary and the articulation of that skeletal work they put a lot of work into that and king kong was actually made during what they called like the golden age of movies so they could have a big staff back then working on on all of these little parts and now in the 70s they they can't really have those big staffs anymore. They just movies are just not made like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so this this um, the model art was very expensive and time consuming. So they still do it now, but but it's just not on the scale of of the King Kong movie. Yes, because you got to figure another reference to at that time modern stop motion animation movies were the Sinbad movies. And Ray Harryhausen was just a master of what he was doing. It also shows model making from Flesh Gordon. It's it's a type of animation that made strides but didn't make enough strides. And so you can see why once computers came into the scene, computers had to take over for articulating creatures. Yes, because can, computers can do it with, like, with fewer people and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, with less time. But I love that classic look. I, I never get bored of looking at classic movies with, with stop-motion animation. It's it's a very unique art form in itself. And and we can still call it an art form. It It is something that, that was beautiful that, that you can look at and you just go, wow. It's, it's like it's just something that, that's very visual and, it, and it's just very appealing. And, and mysterious. I mean, to, to look, because you know it's not real, but it looks so real. Advertisement. Full-scale replicas. Collector's items. Actually reproduced from original helmets. And these are the Don Post helmets of Chewbacca. Stormtrooper, C-3PO, and Darth Vader. Actually, we have the Darth Vader one. I mean, when I was a kid, when I first saw these advertised, my mind was blown how accurate they were. I I first saw this advertisement, or something like it, in Famous Monsters of Filmland. Oh, and and so, but did you have any of them? Uh, I got the Darth Vader one, but I got the Darth Vader one for the 10th anniversary, so I got that in 87. Mm -hmm. But at that time... My God, there, there's no possible way. Did you I didn't actually know about wear it, it though? Oh, uh, you know what I did? I'd like wear it around the house. I wore it for Halloween once, uh, but I mainly just kept it on top of my television in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
So this is interesting, this, this advertisement. It says, Chewbacca is rubber with hand-applied hair, while the rest are metallic-looking vinyl. They cover the entire head and are hand-finished. Only thirty-nine ninety-five each. Tell you what, I didn't know about this at this time, uh, but if I did, so I, I knew about it probably a couple years later, by the time I was reading The Famous Monsters of Filmland. There's no way in hell my parents are going to buy me something like this for $40. <laughs> that was just, I mean, imagine spending $40 on a I helmet mean, see, back then. See, that's not a toy. I mean, if it's, it's that not. expensive. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, you, you see the one that we have on yeah, the shelf yes. there. I mean, it's, it has, they're gorgeous. They're made for teenagers and adults. You know, little goofball me, I had the Ben Cooper costume. I was happy as can be with that, though. Another advertisement. Cosmic Encounter, a quantum jump in games. I had this game, and I still have never played it. Well, I got it during the... COVID shutdown thing. So once we could so have you people haven't had over, it long. No, I haven't had it long. I got it fairly recently. So it's funny that they have an advertisement for this. So it's been around a while. Oh, oh you got it. You got it used. Yeah, yeah, yeah I got game. it in yeah. the case. I saw it there, and I had to get it. Anytime I see retro games, I I pick them up. I buy them. But it says the new science fiction game in Boston and New York become the probing mind possessing the power of ESP floating off the face of furious fearsome multiplying virus. So you could play a virus, a zombie, a macron, has all these different alien species. I mean, it looks really great graphically. It's, I like games of the 70s and 80s for, for the visual appeal, too. Another advertisement. Science fiction buffs, fantasy fans, Dungeons and Dragons enthusiasts, TSNR bring, now brings you Metamorphosis Alpha, science fiction role-playing game. I've never had this. I never knew anybody else that had it. But you could buy it for $5. <laughs> A set of five dice for two fifty. This Later on, TSR made Star Frontiers, and I like Star Frontiers game. Classifieds. Let's talk about some of these classifieds. Now here, what's this? Flesh Gordon. And what's the picture? Oh, it's it's a dildo. I mean, it's supposed to be a spaceship, but it's shaped like a dildo. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this a crazy ad to put in Starlog? It is, but I mean, but I guess you know the people that that you don't want to see it like kids. I guess they wouldn't know it. They wouldn't know what Flesh it is. Flesh Gordon. You remember we went to a convention and in 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 the TV room they had a screening of Flesh Gordon. And I was like, I'm not going to watch this with a group of strangers. What a weird thing to watch in a public place. <laughs> it is. I mean, like, why would they show that? Like, what is... <laughs> well, well, maybe because they had it. <laughs> because they had it. Here it is. Flesh Gordon. Slides and stills from X-rated sci-fi film. Send 75 cents and self-addressed stand envelope for color brochure. Must state that you're 18. Mel Roberts. In Los Angeles, California. Okay. <laughs> Atheism. Philosophy, philosophy of the future. For information, write American Atheists in Austin, Texas. It's the first time I've seen that ad here. The War of the Worlds. Apes. The Day the Earth Stood Still. Starlog fans, you can now collect the spectacular black and white and color stills seen in these pages at affordable prices. 
Still Things in Silmar, California. I, I absolutely love these advertisements. This guy's selling his comic books. Disney hero and sci-fi pulps. James Bond, Diana Rigg. Catalogs are $1.35. Flushing, New York. Star Wars Designs. Four full-color iron-ons for t-shirts. Each features Star Wars logo with photos and art of Luke, C-3PO, R2-D2, Vader, X-Wing, Ship, etc. Only $1.50 each or all four for $5. Starlog Iron-ons, New York, New York. Back cover. Bang. Advertisement for Kiss album Love Gun. Absolutely one of my favorite album covers of all time. Ken Kelly artwork. Well, see, the pictures of all the people, like, they, so they have a white face and and flesh-colored skin. It reminds me of the Joker, right? <laughs> it does, especially all the women yeah. on the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 get, I never thought about it like that, but I guess so. I met him at a convention once, Ken Kelly. Mm-hmm. Really nice guy. Yep, he said he loved working with the band, and because Gene was a comic book fan, that's how they got in contact with each other. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long, and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Sweet Preview Program for Open Channel, a Star Trek community podcast. And it was a very Star Trek way to deal with that type of internal conflict, too. Mm-hmm, you definitely. know, I really loved that. She's working it out with her holographic self. And it was also very Jungian, like her subconscious, mm-hmm. her unconscious was becoming conscious. And it was actually her that was that was talking, the actual Mariner that was having the realizations as she was talking to the holographic character, which I thought was really cool. Loading Sweet preview program for The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. Before that timepiece stopped working. Mm-hmm, that really because ugly, he saw it in the shop window. That really ugly timepiece. When I first watched it, I thought, okay, yes, this is a clock that maybe somebody puts on their desk or mm-hmm. on a wall somewhere. But later we see somebody pull the same thing out of their pocket. Do they not have watches? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's like one of those like huge clunky mobile phones that all they ever did was like call people. It's like, nope, this is just a big clock for my pocket. It's something that Flavor Flav should be wearing around his neck. It's that big and obnoxious. Is that a clock in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> oh, no, no, it's it's just a clock. It's most definitely a clock. <laughs> Loading Sweet preview program for What the Future Holds, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Because we all kind of have that, really. We all have this unconscious part of ourselves that comes to the forefront and says nope mm-hmm. yeah we have an a, adrenal response and so is it similar to that i mean are there kelpians that have stage fright and so the little ganglia will come up if they have to do public speaking <laughs> it's, it's quite like, probably it's we just don't know yeah. yeah if they if they had plays 
<laughs> didn't seem like they really had yeah. that kind of entertainment down on Kaminar. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.